Thank you for that good singing. Turn your Bibles to Romans 3. We're going to be there most of our time this morning as we focus on the communion service. If we follow news locally or sometimes even nationally, I'm sure we all get frustrated when we see our judicial system perform less than sufficient. It's very frustrating when we hate, know someone's a known criminal and yet he's allowed to get off through a technicality or a plea bargain or playing just poor judicial performance. Yet, in a sense, we as believers are experiencing the same. We don't deserve to get away with our sin. Yet because of Christ's mercy, His grace, His substitution and propitiation, He has allowed us to get away without getting what we really deserve. Now most of us are familiar with the words faith, grace, substitution. Faith, of course, is our trusting in the saving work of Christ. Grace is receiving something we don't deserve and that divine ability to do what we can't do on our own. Mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. Substitution is the taking the place of another. And we need to understand all these are vital to our reception of our salvation. However, what does this word propitiation mean? It's not a term that we use much, but it is very significant to our salvation. So we want to explain that today from God's Word. We all need to understand that when punishment is needed, it should fit the crime. And this is why we tend to be so concerned about our judicial system. Because of the punishment does not always fit the crime, people continue to do that crime over and over again. In fact, our judicial system isn't even a punishment. I know when we lived in Huttonsville, I would visit with some of the prisoners there when they would call for a pastor to come in and they would ask me to go in there. And, and one guy was going to be uh, um, on probation. He was going to get out. And uh, I said, well, I guess that's a good thing. He said, no, that's a bad thing. I said, why is that? I don't want to get out. Now what kind of a judicial system is that when he doesn't want to leave a place of punishment? <laughs> he said, I'll be back in six months. And he was deliberately going to go out, commit a crime, get caught, so he could be sent back home. Those are the things that we're concerned with. But once again, let me remind you that in regards to our sinful condition, if we're saved, our punishment does not fit the crime. This is where propitiation comes in. Due to the fact that I am a filthy, dirty, rotten sinner before a holy God, I deserve eternal torment in the lake of fire. I trust that you acknowledge the same thing. That's what we deserve. I, I deserve to be eternally separated from my Creator. Yet, God's Word is very clear. He's not willing that any should perish. It's not going to be a happy day for God when He sends Satan and His angels 
Those who've never put their faith and trust in their son, it's not going to be a good day for God when he throws them in the lake of fire. But there are many that will be saved. And it's because of his son, and the fact that he paid my debt for my crime, he paid for it in full. It wasn't partial and I have to earn the rest of it. It was complete. God's holiness demands punishment and it must fit the crime. He demanded a perfect human to die for the human race. We know that the only way that was possible was through the virgin birth of his son. And the only way that could happen was for God himself to become that sacrifice. I think it's the amazing thing about Christianity. If you look at any other religion on the face of the earth, there's no other religion where the God of that religion has provided the salvation through himself. That is the magnitude of our God's love and grace. So through Christ's birth, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, God's wrath was satisfied on the cross of Calvary. This is what it means by being the propitiation. God's wrath on my sin is completely satisfied. I guess for another way for us to maybe better identify that, let's say we have been caught in a crime. We'll keep it simple. We get a speeding ticket and we have to go before the judge. And the uh, judge says, your ticket's going to cost you $250. And we'll see, we have your very generous deacon come along and say, Judge, can I pay that for him? I don't care who pays for it as long as it's paid. And so your deacon peels out the 250 bucks and pays for it. He's become your propitiation to the judge. The wrath of the crime has been paid for that sin that was committed. What Christ did on the cross of Calvary, as we reflect on the communion today, is what he did there satisfied the payment that needed to be paid for my sin. And that's what the word propitiation means. And we find it here in Romans, that word, as Dave read it for us this morning. But we want to look at this passage a little more in depth to see the magnitude of what goes around it. As we look at our first point, morality does not save us. In verse uh, 19 of chapter 3, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Now just looking at the tone of that verse, it appears a man thinks somehow, I'm going to get away with my sin, and God's going to let me into heaven. If he went down to the mall here and did a survey and asked, are you going to go to heaven when you die? How many you think are going to say yes? A good many of them. I'm a good person. I think I'm going to get there. Very few are going to say, yeah, definitely I'm going to get there, unless they're a believer. But I hope so. I think so. And... and in fact, the premise of Islam is the Muslims are constantly trying to keep the scales tipped. All it has to be is 51% in their favor, and they're going to go to heaven. I don't think the morality of America is any different. Most people are the same way. They're trying to just tip those scales a little bit so I'm a little bit better than I am bad, so that when I die, God's going to say, 
hey, you're the kind of person I'm looking to bring into heaven and come on in. That's not what's going to happen because as we look at this, look at that verse again. It says that every mouth may be stopped. This is a conversation stopper. Man wants to convince themselves that they're good enough to get into heaven. The law is to convince us, as we look at it again in our morning Bible study. Again, I encourage you, if you're not coming to Bible study Sunday morning, you're missing out on some tremendous study and blessings. But the law is to convince us that we cannot measure up. God's standard is perfect, and there's no way you and I are ever going to make it. God's goal is that all of humanity will see themselves as guilty as charged. A sinner. And until someone sees himself as guilty before God, he'll never be justified before God. When he does see himself guilty as charged, he will become a God worshiper instead of a creature worshiper. Romans 1, 18-32, we're not going to take time to read that passage this morning, but you go look at that there, and it talks about man worshiping himself and worshiping the nature in which we live in more than the cre Creator. But he says the law here in verse 19, it does not justify the flesh. Look at verse 20 and 21, therefore, by the deeds of law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So it does not matter how moral, religious, or spiritual we see ourselves. It's not going to impress God. It says, therefore, by the deeds, since we're all guilty and under the law, none will be justified by keeping the law. And again, the average person, if you would ask him, have you broke any of the Ten Commandments? And most people, well, I don't know, I've not committed murder, and I've not done this, and I've not, not done that. And yet what they didn't realize, God equates anger with murder. Because it's the foundation of every murder. And Christ himself made that perfectly. If you've been angry, you are considered a murderer in his sight. So we've broken all those Ten Commandments in one form or another. Maybe not boldly and blatantly like some people have, but in some way, even if it's up here. Because where does sin begin? Do we have to actually commit the sin in order for it to be a sin? The Bible says no. If, it's, if we think it here, it's been done. We may not have followed through with the actual act, but it's still sin. And so we want to candy coat it. But man wants to write his own definition of sin. He wants to be good like God. And how many sins have we rewritten these days? I don't know when it all began, but you know, we don't call an alcoholic one who's addicted to sin the sin of alcohol. They call it a disease. My question is, what virus or what bacteria causes that? Now the homosexual is a homosexual because of a gene. Well, it is, in a sense, because it's in our genes, because we're sinners. Wouldn't you all agree that every one of us in this room has the potential to be a homosexual? To become a drug addict, an alcoholic, a thief? It's in the genes. <laughs> we're born that way. It's inevitable. And so we, we want to candy coat it by labeling some sins worse than others. Now, some sins obviously have greater consequences. 
But all sin in God's eye is sin. It's not even possible to take a baby, place it in a bubble, with no television, with no outside sinful influences. You know what that child is still going to do? That child is still going to sin. Because it's not the outside influences that make me sin. It's me that makes me sin. And so we, and that's where our government's trying to help us out, by trying to understand how the brain works. And what can we do to make our society better by legislating some laws that will eliminate these sinful, or these, they don't call it sin. They, they will label some kind of a brain disorder. And there are brain disorders that can cause us to do some bizarre things. There's no question about that. That's the sin curse on the body. But how many sin, sinful things do we do today? We label a brain problem. It's not really a brain problem. It's a sin problem. But when men and women go to court and their behavior is a bit bizarre, they send them to a psychiatrist and they've got, they label them with some kind of psychological disorder instead of label it sin. In fact, when we look at the Old Testament and the laws laid out for the, the, gent or the Jews, do we find in here anywhere that you've been labeled with a psychological disorder or some physical ailment that you are excused from your sin? It's not there. So even if there is a physical thing, God says if they committed this crime, you know what to do. Here's the list of punishments that needs to be done. Implement it as a deterrent to our sinfulness to realize that we are sinners before a holy God. So in verse 10, 21, it says, but, again, circle the word but, because here comes a transition. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Since the law reveals our sinful condition, if, the, if we're indeed a sinner, if this is the bad, what's the good? The good is the righteousness of God, His holy character. The law reveals that indeed there is this bad, sinful side of us, but there's this good side, this God, that we can attain through the shed blood of Christ. And the prophets, their testimony of that, they testify that. The prophets knew God. They saw His holiness. Isaiah, for one. He saw God's holiness. And what did Isaiah do? He fell on his face before God. He said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And I strongly suspect that Isaiah was probably a very godly man. And yet when he saw himself before the holy God, all he could see was his sinfulness. I'm convinced that one reason we don't see revival today is because we as Christians are not seeing ourselves in comparison to Christ. We are seeing ourselves compared to the worst sinner on the planet. That's the wrong comparison to make. Each one of us daily need to be making a comparison between us and the Holy God. And then we'll see ourselves for what we really are. A filthy, dirty, rotten sinner saved by the grace of God. 
So the law and the prophets were a testimony of God's righteousness. This is what is right. It is God. It's holy character. God's righteousness is only realized by faith. Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. God's righteousness is only realized by our faith, and that is faith in Jesus. He is perfect. He's that sacrificial lamb to all, on all who believe. No difference between God's revealed righteousness and the law of the prophets. The results are the same. He is righteous. He is our standard. Everyone is guilty of being a sinner. So no matter what our opinion is of ourselves, no matter how moral we may think we are, we're all guilty. We all fall short. He is perfect. He is our standard. But propitiation saves us. Verse 24, 25. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith. Christ redeems us, buys us out of our slavery. And we don't see it in this chapter, but in chapter 6, if we were turned there of, of Romans, we're not going to turn there at this point. But verse 6 is, said, if we're not saved by grace, we are slaves to sin. Think back to the last time you sinned and I sinned. At that moment, did you see yourself as a slave? Being driven by our selfishness to do what we want to do? Probably not. We probably excused it. We probably rationalized it. We probably ignored it. We did it because I wanted what I want. But when I'm doing that, I'm allowing myself to be a slave to the ugliness of sin. And yet you and I will do everything we can to somehow convince ourselves that this isn't so bad. No one's going to see it but me. It's not going to affect anybody. Sin always damages relationships, starting with our relationship with Him. And if we persist with that selfishness, I guarantee you it will affect the relationship with everybody in your world of influence. Starting at home. We've talked about this before. When your husband or wife or children or friends or neighbors are being cranky and irritable and selfish, there's something simple behind it. Now, when we start doing that, we need to pull up the reins and say, why am I being so cranky? Why am I being so selfish? There's some sinful attitude that we need to let God reveal to us and deal with it. When we confess it and we repent of it, then our relationship with Him is renewed, and then our relationship with those horizontally are renewed. His shed blood is the payment. Let's turn to Hebrews 9.22. Now the theme of the book of Hebrews, as you might remember, he's writing whoever the author is. We don't know who the author is specifically. But it's being written to Jewish Christians. And again, Mike has then doing an excellent job in showing us that for the Jews who were coming out of Judaism and moving into the church age, these people had a tremendous transition to make. 
they were sacrificing lambs and goats and doing the blood sacrifices and, and, and the holy Sabbath days. and It was a very tedious religion. And now Paul says, you don't even have to be circumcised anymore. Circumcision never saved you anyways. It just showed where your relationship with Christ was. But Hebrews 9.22 says this, there's something better now than the lamb. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, but without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now, we may not understand why God required Christ to spill his blood. Could he have done it in some other way that was a little less messy? I wonder if that isn't what was behind Cain's thinking when he refused to offer the lambs and the goats on the altar. He said, God, I'm doing my best in raising my vegetables. These are the best vegetables I've got. They're organic. I'm not using any pesticides. I mean, it's great, God. I've worked hard. I give you my best. And Abel over here, he's slitting the throat of the animal. Blood is everywhere. Disemboweling the animal, burning it on an altar. It was work. And yet, who did God accept? He accepted Abel's, not Cain's. Cain was downplaying the sinfulness. In fact, I've often wondered why did God make it so bloody? And here's, I believe, the reason why. How many love to see blood? When you see blood, you know something serious is happening, right? So when we see blood that's spilled, we know there's something serious going on between us and God. Because what was the first thing that happened right after Adam and Eve sinned? God spilled the blood of an innocent animal. It's a picture of the blood that was going to come and be the permanent covering for Adam and Eve's sin in yours and mine. I believe that every time we see blood, we're to remember, I have a Redeemer that spilled His blood for me. And this is serious business. Because man continues to downplay it, and as a result of it, there's too many people going to hell. Because they want to see themselves as good. Verse, back to Romans 3.26 says, We are justified. Simple definition, just as if I never sinned. Now, to the best of my knowledge, everybody in this room knows Jesus Christ is their Savior. And someday, every one of us is going to stand before Him. And when I stand before Him, I know I'm going to feel the effects of my sin before Him. And I'm not going to be able to stand there and say, God, aren't I a good Christian? Aren't you proud of me? Ain't going to happen. You know where I, you and I are going to be? Flat on our face before a holy God. But you know what He's going to say? John, you can stand up because I don't see your sin. It's just as if you never sinned. All I see is the blood of Jesus Christ on you. Just like the Jews did in, the, in the Egypt when they put the blood over the doorpost. That was proof that God, we believe you. There's a Redeemer and we want the death angel to pass over us. And when we accept the Christ as Savior, the blood was put on our forehead. Just as if I never sinned. Doesn't mean I'm perfect because I'm not. Neither are you. But when he looks at me, he looks at it through blood-colored glasses. 
And all he sees is John Stitzel and the blood through the blood of Christ. That's justification. It's by his grace. I don't deserve it. God sent forth his son to be that propitiation. What Jesus Christ did there completely satisfied him. And now we can have a completely renewed relationship. We're guaranteed to escape the fires of hell. Guaranteed a place in heaven. We're looking forward to that day. God is now, his son is now our Passover lamb. We can find that in Exodus chapter 12. But notice it says here, boasting will not save us, verse 27. Where is the boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. Why would we want to boast? Now remember, Paul was a Jew. He's addressing the Jews because most of the individuals that he's talking to are Jews that have gotten saved. And we have Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says, here is the reason I should be going to heaven. And he gave us eight different reasons why he was standing like a proud as a peacock, saying, I'm getting to heaven because of these eight things. I am a Jew. I'm a child of God in the tribe of Benjamin. All these things. He was boasting. So Paul knew what he was writing about here because he was guilty of it. We want to feel good about ourselves. We want to feel comfortable about our moral status. We feel this need to earn our place in heaven. We want to feel better than those that are worse than us. It appeals to our status of godhood. The danger... God is not at all impressed. He shuts out our boasting and he stops our conversation. This is nothing more than pride and pride was the very first sin that Satan committed. God is not at all impressed. You know what impresses God more than anything? Humility. I hope that every one of us every day Sometime during the day, thanks God for saving this filthy, dirty, rotten sinner. That will help us keep perspective and keep us humble before Him. Does the law or the works forbid boasting? That's the question. The principle of faith can stop that boasting. It's accomplished by faith, and even our faith does not come from us. Our faith is given to us by God. Doing good deeds earns no favor with God. It really doesn't matter how good we see ourselves, does it? If we're guilty of comparing ourselves to the worst person we can think of, we need to stop it today and compare ourselves to who Jesus Christ is. God is never going to be impressed with our moral standard. Unless we believe that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient to pay the penalty, God's wrath for sin will never be propitiated, never be satisfied. We've been reminded through this passage that 
it can be justified only through Christ and not because of anything we do or don't do. So as we focus our attention on the bread, again, I remind you that this is nothing more than a reminder of his body that was broken for us. Deacons, you can come now as we get ready for communion.